Way back in 1997, I was working as a customs officer and I'd been given a project to do which involved organising a major publicity event in Newcastle. And to prepare for this, the head of external affairs of Customs and Excise, a guy called Ken Duncan, he came up from London uh, to have a meeting with myself and my boss. So I had to pick this guy up who was an extremely senior person, way above my rank and actually way above my boss's rank. Um, and I had to pick this guy up, Ken, Ken Duncan, from Newcastle Central Station. And then we were going to wait around for about half an hour on the station, have a coffee or whatever, and wait for my boss to arrive. But the problem was that on that particular day, there'd been some major delays on the East Coast main line from London to Newcastle. And when I arrived at the train station, it was utter chaos. There were literally thousands of people everywhere. And when I pulled up in the car park, because I was planning on just kind of pulling in and I pick him up and go, when I pulled up in the car park to park, I realised my first problem was that I didn't have any money to pay for the car park. I wasn't expecting to have to pay. So I abandoned my car on some double yellow lines, got out of the car, and then this traffic warden came along. And so I pulled out my customs badge, flashed it in her face, and uh, as if I was on some kind of major drugs raid, and she nodded, looking really impressed, and she let me leave the car there. And then I ran off into the station itself to continue, uh, and as I ran off, trying to continue that impression that I was on really... Uh, some major event about to arrest somebody. Uh, and then as I got into the station itself and saw the thousands of people, the utter chaos, I realised that my second problem was that I didn't actually know what Ken looked like, this guy Ken Duncan. I'd spoken to him on the phone a number of times, but I had no idea what he looked like. I knew that he had a Scottish accent, and I guessed from his kind of voice and the rank he was at that he was probably about 50-ish. But as I looked around the station that morning, it was packed with people. There were hundreds of men dressed in suits, many of which were around about 50. So I wasn't sure what on earth I was going to do. And then as I stood what, sort of wondering what on earth I was going to do, I saw this guy walking towards me in my general direction. And as he spoke to another passenger to let them by as they were walking by, I heard him uh, speaking in a Scottish accent. And I looked at him and he was dressed for the part. He looked the classic senior civil servant. And I thought, fantastic, I found Ken. So I walked up to this guy and I introduced myself to him and told him that I was Andy, told him that I was illegally parked and I needed to some change. I needed to run back and pay for the car park and so on. So could he give me some change, which he very kindly did. He gave me some change and uh, I ran off and I uh, went and got the ticket for my car. And then I came back to the station to continue chatting with my newfound friend as we waited for my boss. And as we chatted, making trying to make conversation with someone I'd never actually met, I was we were talking about various things. And I told him about a major drugs operation that we'd recently had up here in the Northeast, uh, which he seemed fascinated by. And as we chatted, we both began to realise, it began to dawn on us both, that neither of us were who the other one thought we were. He wasn't Ken Duncan from Customs and Excise. And despite what he thought, I wasn't from... Northumbria police. He worked for the Home Office, it turned out, and he was up for a meeting with the police, and he thought I was the guy from the police that had come to meet him. So we were both initially really embarrassed, as you can imagine. Uh, we'd both been chatting away to the wrong person for about 20 minutes. I'd even managed to get him to pay for my car parking ticket. Well, the real Ken Duncan did arrive a little bit later on, and this time I got the right guy, and we all lived happily ever after, as they say. But as you can imagine, I got some real stick from my boss and from the other guys in the office who made fun of me for a long time after that. You know, people's identity really does matter. I got the wrong guy and he got the wrong guy. We both got the wrong guy and it could have had really serious consequences if you think about it for both of us. If we're going to meet someone new and trust someone new, then it's important that we know who they are 
and actually that we know who we are. Last week here at Regent, we looked at John chapter 1, 19 to 28, and we saw how people came out to find who John the Baptist really was. They wanted to get his true identity. Who was he? And we also saw that John the Baptist had come to prepare people for the coming of the Messiah, God's chosen king to rule and reign in God's world. And of course, that Messiah was Jesus. And John the Baptist, his job was once he prepared people for the coming of the Messiah, his job was to testify as to who the Messiah actually was. Just like in a court case when a witness testifies as to someone's identity. Well, today we've reached verse 29 of John chapter one, and we're going to see how John testified that Jesus was the Messiah. Unlike me with my friend Ken, John the Baptist got the right man. So John chapter one, verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me the man on whom you see the spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the son of God. Now, remember that John, that the John who wrote this account is a different John to John the Baptist, the John that we read about in this account are two different Johns. Before the events of today's passage and before the events of last week's passage, Jesus had come to John and had been baptized by John. And then Jesus had spent 40 days in the desert. Now, the John who wrote this account doesn't mention this. So we have to look at some of the other accounts, uh, Matthew and Mark particularly, to fit these pieces together and see what actually happened chronologically. So we look at Matthew chapter three, verses 13 to 17. We read this. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as John was as soon as Jesus rather was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the spirit of God descend, descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love with him. I am well pleased. And before we look at today's passage, we need to understand why Jesus did this, why Jesus was baptized. John baptized people as a sign that they were repenting. They were turning away from their sin and and turning to God and that they were it was a sign that they were going to be forgiven. But as we saw on week one of this series, Jesus was and is God. He was the word made flesh and God can't sin. And the Bible makes it really clear that Jesus was perfect. He was sinless. He never sinned. So why on earth then did Jesus get baptized? Why did he ask John to baptize him? Well, look at what Jesus said. He said it was to fulfill all righteousness. So what does he mean by that? Well, Jesus wasn't being baptized to show that he was turning away from his sins. He didn't sin. What he was doing was showing and uh, making that uh, or, or marking rather that he was turning from one stage in his life, one part of his life to a new stage in his life. This was the beginning of Jesus public life of teaching and preaching and healing. And ultimately, this new stage in his life would uh, end with him dying upon the cross, rising again and returning back to heaven. 
Jesus was demonstrating by being baptized that he was being totally committed to the work that he had come to do, which was to die for each one of us and to pay the price for our sins. And then having been baptized, God the Father sent the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove down upon God the Son and announced that Jesus was his son and that he was pleased with him. And John the Baptist saw this. And because he saw this and experienced this, he knew for certain who the Messiah was. It was Jesus. And then we read in Mark chapter one, verses 12 to 13. And at once the spirit sent him, that's Jesus, out into the wilderness, into the desert. And he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. So having been baptized to demonstrate his obedience to God, the father and to show John the Baptist who he really was, Jesus then went off and spent 40 days in the desert where Satan tempted him. But Jesus, though 100 percent human, demonstrated and proved that he was also 100 percent God because he didn't sin. He didn't give in to any of the temptations that Satan threw at him. And then after this period of 40 days, Jesus came back and he comes back and he sees John. And John sees Jesus. And that's where we get to our passage today. And verse 29 of John chapter one, the first verse that we looked at says this. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, this is the day after the men from Jerusalem have questioned John the Baptist about his identity. This is what we looked at last week. But now John announces to his own followers Jesus identity. John calls Jesus the Lamb of God. And then he says, this is the one I meant when I said a man comes after me who has surpassed me because he was before me. John reminds the people around him, principally, I think here, his own followers, that although the Messiah would come onto the public scene after he did, the Messiah was actually greater than he was because the Messiah was eternal. He'd always existed. And then we read, I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me the man on whom you see the spirit come down is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Now, John the Baptist knew who Jesus was. He was a close relative and they would have almost certainly spent time together growing up. John would almost certainly have grown up hearing about the circumstances of his own birth and the birth of Jesus, what the angel had said to his father, Zachariah, and what the angel had said to Joseph and Mary. And John knew that Jesus was different. Jesus was fully human. John would have seen that Jesus was different as he interacted with him. Jesus was fully human, but John would have seen something very different about the behavior of Jesus because Jesus was sinless. And that's why, as we read in Matthew, that John didn't want to baptize Jesus when he came to him and, and wanted actually Jesus to baptize him. Instead, he knew that Jesus didn't have any sins to repent of, but he knew he couldn't know for certain that Jesus was the Messiah. I, I think from his upbringing, the things he knew, he probably thought this was, but he didn't know for certain. And he wasn't allowed by God to announce that the Messiah was Jesus, that Jesus was the Messiah until God had actually told him. And God had actually said so. And God, the one who'd sent him to baptize with water, told him that the man on whom you see the spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. In other words, he is the Messiah and he's the one who will change people by the power of the Holy Spirit. And when John baptized Jesus, which was 40 days or so, at least earlier than what we're reading in today's passage, that's exactly what happened. And so John says in verse 34, I have seen 
and I testify that this is the son of God. John the Baptist is the right man and he's found the right man, Jesus. There's no case of mistaken identity. This is the son of God. He's baptized Jesus and then he's watched as the Holy Spirit has descended from heaven and has remained on Jesus, demonstrating to John that Jesus was the Messiah. And he's heard God the Father speak out, declare that Jesus is the son that he loves. All three members of the Trinity are involved here. We've got God the Father, we've got God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And it's so important that John identifies the right person to his followers. There wasn't anything that physically stood out about Jesus. He didn't hover two feet off the floor. He didn't have a halo around his head. He didn't shine as he kind of walked along. He was fully human. He would have just looked like you and I did, a regular, ordinary human being. In fact, today's passage refers to Jesus twice as a man. But he was different because this man was the son of God. Jesus' identity really matters and our identity really matters. It's so important that we start that we understand who Jesus is and that we understand who we are. Jesus isn't just referred to in the passage as the son of God. John the Baptist calls Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What does he mean by that? Why does he call him that? Well, Jesus obviously wasn't a real lamb. Calling Jesus the Lamb of God is a metaphor. It's a word picture that tells us something about Jesus and tells us something about what Jesus would do on the cross. And it was meant to tell John's disciples something about Jesus and what he would do on the cross. The role that Jesus performed when he died was just like the lambs that died the night that God had freed the Israelites from slavery in Egypt 1400 years earlier. God had said 1400 years earlier to to Moses and to the people of Israel that he was going to punish Pharaoh and the Egyptians and he would pass through the land of Egypt at midnight and the firstborn son of every home would die. But the Israelites were given a solution to this. They were told to take a lamb. They were told to observe it for four days and to make sure it didn't have any defect. It was spotless and blameless. Then they were to sacrifice it and they were to apply its blood to the doorposts and the lintels of their homes and then sheltering under the blood of that lamb would secure their safety. God would pass over the homes that were sheltering under the blood of the lamb and that's where the Jewish feast of Passover gets its name from. It's about remembering that great event in Jewish history. So John was saying that Jesus was the fulfillment of that event 1400 years previously. That event happened, it had its own purpose, but ultimately the event was pointing forwards to Jesus coming and to what Jesus would do. And it was fulfilled in and by Jesus himself. The Bible says that just like the Passover lamb, Jesus would be watched and observed, but found to be sinless and perfect. We've seen how he was tempted not for four days or how he was uh, tempted not for four days, but actually for 40 days. But then Hebrews 4 and 15 in the Bible says this, Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. And then just like the spotless lamb at the Passover, Jesus would voluntarily lay down his own life upon the cross, shedding his blood for you and for me. Right throughout history, right throughout the Bible, God has always taught that the only way that sin could be dealt with was through a sacrifice. Somebody else had to, somebody had to pay the price of sin. A sacrifice had to be made for sin. God's wrath, God's judgment towards sin and towards people's rejection of him is always dealt with, according to the Bible, by the shedding of blood. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. 
the visible evidence of blood that had been shed was the proof that a life had actually been given. And Jesus gave his life for you and me on the cross. His blood was shed for us. And whilst giving his life for us there on the cross, something phenomenal happened. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this. This is from the New Century Version. Christ had no sin, but God made him become sin so that in Christ we could become right with God. Jesus was perfect. He was sinless. Yet whilst he was hanging on the cross, God the Father placed all your sins and all of my sins onto Jesus. He became our substitute sacrifice, a sacrifice in our place. Now, the lamb at the first Passover 1400 years earlier was a sacrifice in place of the firstborn male of every uh, Israelite household in Egypt. And the blood of the lambs on the doorpost and the lintel symbolized that a, a substitute sacrifice had died. And that meant that all those in houses that had the blood of the lamb on the doorpost and the lintel were able to shelter from God's judgment. He would pass over them. Now, on the cross, Jesus chose to become our substitute sacrifice as he died in our place, taking the punishment for our sins and enabling us to escape God's wrath against our sin. Isaiah was uh, a prophet who lived about 700 years before John and Jesus, and he wrote these words about the Messiah and what he would do when he came and how he would die for us. This is what he said. He says he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. Jesus was the one who was led like a lamb to the slaughter on the cross. Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So important that we get Jesus identity right, because if we get it wrong, we can't have our sins dealt with. And if you read the whole of Isaiah 53, which I really encourage you to do, you'll see how Jesus, the Lamb of God, became our substitute sacrifice there on the cross. And Isaiah, writing 700 years before Jesus' death, graphically describes the death of the Lord Jesus there for us on the cross. And the Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every human being, with the exception of Jesus, has sinned and has come short of God's perfect standard. Every single one of us has sinned and every single one of us needs Jesus, the Lamb of God, to take away our sin. And he can, if we will let him, he will take it away. Your sin and my sin needs dealing with. And Jesus, the Lamb of God, is the solution to that sin. We can't solve the problem ourselves. We need God to provide the answer. That's why John the Baptist calls Jesus the Lamb of God. He's the Lamb, the substitute sacrifice that God himself has provided for us. He's God, the word made flesh, but he's also a real man. And he needed to be a real human being so that he was able to fully represent us, the humans, uh, the human race as a substitute sacrifice. But he's also God because only God was and is sinless. And only God was able to be the perfect spotless sinless sacrifice. And when we repent and put our faith in Jesus, when we turn from our sin and turn to Jesus to deal with the problem of our sin, then he will take it away. And he does take it away. John says that Jesus is the Lamb of God, the perfect substitute sacrifice who takes away the sin of the world. He completely removes our sins when we trust in him. So if you have trusted in Jesus today, then your sin has been completely taken away. Write that on your outline. If you're using an outline this morning, if, you're, if, if you've got that in the email this week, write that on your outline. If I have trusted in Jesus, then my sin has been taken away, completely removed, gone forever. Your sins are completely gone. They've been taken away, never, ever to be brought up again. And not just your past sins, but all your future sins as well. 
If you've trusted in Jesus, then when God looks at you, he sees you now as being as perfect and as holy as Jesus. The Bible says once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body. That's a reference to Jesus uh, laying his life down as the lamb on the cross. He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Once we were enemies, we were God's enemies because of our sin. But if we've trusted in Jesus, then God looks at us and he views us as being holy without blemish and free from any accusation. Just as Jesus was holy and was like a lamb without blemish and was free from any accusation of wrongdoing, so are we when we trust in Jesus. So write this down. If you have trusted in Jesus, then you are holy and perfect in God's sight. If you've trusted in Jesus today, you are holy and perfect in God's sight. Now, you may not feel very holy. You may not feel perfect. You may not behave in a very holy manner. I certainly don't. And I'm certainly not a very perfect person at all. And, there's a, and in the human sense, none of us are. Believe me, I'm very much aware of my sin. I know I let God down every day. But when we trust in Jesus, the word made flesh, the Lamb of God, he takes our sin away. And God then thinks of the holiness and perfection of Jesus as now belonging to us. He gives it to us, what theologians call imputing. God imputes the righteousness, the right living of Jesus to us. If you have trusted in Jesus, then when God looks at you today, he says, sin, what sin? I don't see any sin. I just see the holiness and perfection of my son, Jesus. Our sin is completely gone because the Lamb of God has taken it away. And in the place of our sin, God has given us the holiness and the righteousness of Jesus. In verse 32, John, uh, God says to John the Baptist, the man on whom you see the spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize in the Holy Spirit. Jesus baptizes us with the Holy Spirit when we trust in him. In other words, when we trust in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes upon us and lives in us and changes us. And we are transformed and we are brand new people. We're born again. We become the children of God. And our whole identity is completely changed by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And not just our identity, but our eternal destiny as well. It's so important that we get Jesus identity right. He is God. The word made flesh. He's the lamb of God who takes away our sin. The one who baptizes us in the Holy Spirit. It's so important that we get our identity right. It's so important that we understand that we understand how God views us when he looks at us, because ultimately it is only God's opinion that actually counts. How other people around us think about us is ultimately irrelevant. Only God's opinion really matters. So important this morning that we understand that anybody who has not trusted in Jesus is a sinner and is facing God's wrath in eternity unless they repent and turn to Jesus. But if we've trusted in Jesus, then it's so important that we get our new identity right, that we understand how God views us now, now that we've put our faith in Jesus. The Bible doesn't refer to those who have trusted in Jesus as sinners. That's how it refers to those who reject Jesus. The Bible always refers to those who've trusted in Jesus as saints. And a saint is a holy one. Now, we don't become saints by doing good things. The Bible says that we become saints when we trust in Jesus. God considers us to be saints, to be holy people when we trust in Jesus. Everyone who has put their faith and trust in Jesus is a saint. 
according to the Bible. Everyone who trusts in Jesus is made holy and is made perfect in God's sight. We are no longer sinners. We are saints that sometimes sin. Our identity has been transformed by the one who baptizes those who trust in him in the Holy Spirit. He changes us completely. We still sin. I still sin. But God has taken away our sin through Jesus' death on the cross. And that means that if we've trusted in Jesus, then we have been forgiven and we've been made holy. Our sins have gone past, present and future. They've been taken away forever. And even the sins that you've yet to commit have been taken away if you have trusted in Jesus. Now, Satan loves to come along and he loves to accuse us and remind us and drag up those sins from our past and our failures. That's what Satan's name means, the accuser. And when we hear that voice in our heads reminding us of our past and the ways that we've messed up and let God down, all our failures, all our mess ups, all our foul ups. And in those moments, we can feel such guilt, sometimes utterly paralyzing guilt. But if we've trusted in Jesus, then we are no longer guilty. The Bible says there is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are not condemned anymore. We've been forgiven. Our sins have been taken away by the Lamb of God and we've been made holy and perfect. So don't let the failures of your past hold you back and let you down, whatever they were, whether that was yesterday or whether that was 50 years ago, because that's false guilt. And the Bible says that we are no longer guilty because of what Jesus has done. And when you do sin and you will, don't let Satan hold you down. Confess your sin to God. Embrace the fact that you're already forgiven and you've been made holy. And then get back on the bike and, and, and live again for Jesus. And if you've yet to put your faith and trust in Jesus to take away your sins, then can I encourage you to do that today? Take that step of faith and put your trust in Jesus to be the one who would take away your sin forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the Lord Jesus was the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Thank you that he was the perfect lamb, the one that never sinned, the one that could become our substitute sacrifice there on the cross. Thank you that he was also your son and is your son. Thank you that in him was all your delight. You were well pleased with him. Thank you that he was perfect in every way, but thank you that he was human in every way and so was able to represent us there on the cross. Thank you that he died in our place to deal with our sin and takes away our sin if we trust in him. We thank you for him. We worship you this morning. We give you thanks for what you've done for us. We thank you for our new identity in Jesus if we've trusted in him. We thank you that we are no longer considered as sinners, but you see us as saints. You see us as holy ones. And we thank you for that wonderful truth. Thank you that you've changed us by the power of your spirit. We are born again if we've trusted in Jesus and you've given us a new life and a new identity. Help us to uh, celebrate that, to live that out, to put that into practice every day we pray. So we give you thanks. We praise you this morning and we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.